Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Big Ideas on the New Books Network. Today, we're talking with Lawrence Krauss about his book, A Universe from Nothing, Why There is Something Rather Than Nothing. The subtitle of this book uh, really attracted me, and I think it attracted a lot of people. And Lawrence has some very interesting things to say about what nothing is and what something is and how what nothing is, in one sense, can produce something. And I found the book very enlightening in that way. Uh, So... Lawrence, let me ask you the preliminary and really only question on new books and big ideas. What is the big idea in a universe from nothing? Well, I guess the biggest idea is the biggest surprise that I can imagine, which is that you can get a universe with 400 billion galaxies, each containing 100 billion stars and everything we see in the night sky. And all of that can come from nothing without any supernatural shenanigans. Mm -hmm. Supernatural shenanigans. We'll come back to that in a second. Uh, So... uh, Clearly, I think for most people, the idea that something can come from nothing is counterintuitive. We could uh, put it that way. That it would involve something that we don't understand. Because although I think we do actually see something come from nothing quite often in our lives, we don't recognize it as such. And that's because we misunderstand the notion of nothing. So maybe you could talk a little bit about what nothing might be from a physicist's point of view. Well, that's a, that's a, obviously a very good question. And I think... Um, you want to be careful in general in science because terms don't mean the same thing that they do when, when we talk in, in, in common language. And so when we talk about nothing, the simplest version, it seems to me, to me, nothing is the absence of something. And that, as it's a physical quantity. So, so the absence of everything I can measure is nothing. Now, um, I think that, that so the simplest version of nothing is just the kind of nothing of the Bible, an eternal empty void empty space, if you wish. And that simplest kind of nothing is, is in fact, as I, I discussed in the book, it, um, you can easily create stuff from that kind of nothing because that kind of nothing is unstable, and maybe we can get to that. But then one can go a little bit further and say, well, you know, that's not really nothing to me because uh, there's space. Where did the space come from? Um, and, then I, and, and then that's a good question. And, and, in fact, one can argue that given the laws of physics as we now know them, even space itself and time, can arise spontaneously where there was no space and time. So you can start out with no space, no time, no matter, no radiation, and that might be a really good version of nothing. But then you, you could ask the last question, which is, okay, well, that's you got no space, you know, no time, all the rest, but you, where did the laws come from? And what's rather interesting is even the laws of nature may have arisen spontaneously uh, for, as our universe arose, as we now talk about in science. So you got no laws, no space, no time, no matter, no radiation. To me, that's that's about as nothing as you can get. Mm-hmm. I see. I'm glad you mentioned measurability or observability. So uh, nothing is the absence of anything that I can measure. I've did some science myself, and this was the standard way in which we talked about it when I did it. That is, there was nothing measurable there. Can you talk a little bit about, historically speaking, this is an interesting uh, concept because you know for for the Greeks let's say or even for Newton there really was nothing because there was nothing for example space that could be measured um, but now it turns out 
and you point out this out in the book and also in the um, new introduction about the Higgs boson and such, that there is something now we can measure in the nothing, so it's no longer nothing. I feel like I'm. I feel like I should say who's on first at this point. Yeah. <laughs> You're doing a good job. I'm just listening, so that's good. Yeah. So anyway, can you talk a little bit about how the boundaries of observability sort of push nothing back? Yeah, I mean, I think that your, your point is really important. That is that um, that that in science, what you can if you can't measure it in some sense, or even can't measure it in principle, it's not science. And and um, and science has changed. You know, so a lot of people since my book has come out have said, well, you know, this isn't fair. Your, your nothing isn't what we mean by nothing or what Aristotle meant by nothing. And the point is that science changes our meaning of things. Science changes because it's called actually, it's actually called learning. <laughs> <laughs> we, um, we, as we observe the universe, our preconceptions, even our common sense preconceptions, as you pointed out, it, it defies our common sense. But the universe does, isn't, doesn't exist to satisfy our common sense. Our common sense was, you know, evolved because we were on the savanna trying to avoid lions, and uh, mm -hmm. and 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 that kind of common sense works on our scale. But the universe is actually much more interesting, and science has allowed us to explore it on scales that are far bigger than humans, and obviously far smaller. And on those scales, human scale common sense doesn't work anymore. And in fact. One of the most exciting aspects of, of nothing, if you wish, that, that, that has come out of, out of physics in the 20th century and, and 21st centuries now, is that nothing, empty space, is really a boiling, bubbling brew of virtual particles that pop in and out of existence on a time scale so short you can't measure them. Mm -hmm. Now the word measurement comes in again. You say, well, if you can't measure them, it isn't science. Didn't you just tell me it isn't science if you can't measure them? Well, you can't measure them directly. But what's amazing about these virtual particles that are popping in and out of empty spaces, we can measure their effects indirectly. Mm -hmm. And we know they exist because they're responsible, among other things, for the mass of, of all of the particles in our body, the protons and neutrons. Um, most of the mass comes from empty space. We, we understand the beautiful quantum mechanical energy levels of atoms. We can only explain that if these particles exist. So the indirect effects tell us that they exist. They're testable. If we can't falsify it, it isn't science. And then, as I say, one of the, for me, one of the greatest aspects of the discovery of the Higgs particle is that, that it, is, it, it validates the notion that there could be an invisible field throughout empty space that we can't measure that actually affects the properties of matter. Mm -hmm. And it, I, I have to say that although it was strongly, I suppose, suggested by our understanding of the standard model of particle physics, I was... I, I actually did not expect the Higgs to exist. I, I, I kind of hoped the Higgs didn't exist because the explanation was so sort of slippery that I figured nature would find a more, a, a more surprising way of doing things. But in fact, we were right. The Higgs particle exists. There's an invisible field in nature, and it affects the, the way particles behave. And that means that even sort of empty space or seemingly empty space is far more interesting than we ever imagined before. Mm -hmm. But, I mean, can we say then that it is now, from what we might call the received view of science, not empty space anymore? Well, that, uh, that absolutely. That, I mean, in, in the sense that it's full of this Higgs field. Mm -hmm. but, what's, what's but I don't want to confuse people. The Well, we probably are, but... <laughs> <laughs> the... Uh, the uh, uh, 
even if you got rid of the Higgs field and got rid of all everything that you know you, you, that in some sense is measurable because the Higgs field is in principle measurable even though it's invisible to our regular eyesight even if you get rid of all of that so you might call that nothing then you can create something from that particles can pop nothing is unstable if you get if you get rid of all those fields and radiation and matter empty space is unstable and quant the laws of quantum mechanics and relativity will tell us that it will start to pop out particles. Mm -hmm. It's certainly possible. Now, is this so, based on... So the big question, by the way, the big question then should be, although no one asked it among the classical philosophers because they didn't understand modern physics or didn't know about it, was not why is there something rather than nothing, but the really surprising thing would be to ask why is there nothing rather than something. Mm -hmm. Because that would be really unexpected, but of course, if there were, we wouldn't be around to ask the question. That's quite true, and I am confused now. So... <laughs> <laughs> so l let me ask this then um is you said for example if we take away the higgs particles and things like this something can still come from the nothing that is left whatever that might be is this judgment the result of inference i mean you mentioned that before inference there are some things that are not measurable we cannot see them directly or measure them but we know they have an effect on something else and you know uh hume talked about this in the 18th century you know, this was sort of a standard way in which we look at the world. Uh, I mean, he gives the example of somebody walking down a beach and the ocean comes in and uh, it obscures one of the footprints. And he says, well, you know, we can infer that a man did that. It was probably a two-legged man, not a one-legged man hopping up and down the beach, but we don't have, we can observe it directly. It's an inferential judgment. Is that what we're working with here? Well, a little bit, but it's, but it, it's, it's, it's better than that because it's true that, on the basis of what we see, we infer things. But science isn't just a story. We do more than infer things. We then make predictions about things we haven't measured. Mm -hmm. So, so it, look, when we're talking about the universe, we, we're, we're speculating about certain things. We have At the limits of our knowledge, we're always speculating. But we're looking for things that we can measure that can test our speculations and our inferences. Uh, and so um, we, we, you know, again, this notion... Uh, uh, virtual particles, uh, we can test. Mm -hmm. uh, the notion of the Higgs field is something, ob we obviously it took us 50 years to test it, but we were able to test it at the Large Hadron Collider. Mm -hmm. And that's what's exciting about science, is not just that it tells a beautiful story, but that it predicts the future by mm -hmm. predicting the results of experiments we haven't yet performed. Now, ultimately, and at the limits of our knowledge, and we live in one universe, and there may be many universes, and we, and we may have no other access to those other universes. And therefore, there may be things that we will end up always only being able to infer if you want. But, we won't, but, but, but the level at which we accept their existence will depend upon the other predictions of the same theories. You know, you might, a theory might predict many other universes, but if it also predicts the masses of all the elementary particles and the forces of nature and it gets it right, then we're probably a little more willing to accept those inferences we can't measure, just like we accepted the existence of, of, um, of atoms well before we could see them. Mm -hmm. Isn't gravity a little bit like that? I remember learning in physics that gravity is a little bit like that. We didn't really understand how it worked, but we could uh, easily infer that it was there from predictions of what it did. Well, we yeah, well, yeah, although well, I think what you're saying is we didn't understand, we still don't understand why it works. Yeah, we really don't, but, yeah. But we, we but... Uh, so, you know, uh, uh, Newton said hypothesis non fingo. He said, I frame no hypothesis. He, he came up with the universal law of gravity, 
And, you know, people said, well, what about this instantaneous action at distance and what's mediating gravity? And he said, you know, it basically what he said, which is a good answer for scientists, we have it. We have this model that explains things. It makes the right predictions. And and I'm not going to go beyond that at this point. And, and I'm not going to make any any inferences about things I can't test. Mm-hmm. Now, of course, we actually as science makes progress and we have a different understanding of gravity than Newton did and understand ultimately that there is, we think, a particle, if you wish, that mediates the force of gravity. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think, all, yeah, so we, we, we should be very careful to not make claims that extend beyond the things we actually can test, but at the same time we can make speculations that provide predictions. And, and most importantly, I guess for me, we can ask what's plausible. Because for me, the biggest thing to celebrate, the reason I wrote this book, is not that we can prove a universe came from nothing, because we don't yet have a theory that allows us to understand the universe at time t equals zero and a theory of quantum gravity. But what's amazing is it's plausible. Mm-hmm. And even that plausibility is worth celebrating. It's like before it, when Darwin came up with evolution. Before Darwin, life was special creation. Life was a miracle. Every different kind of life was designed for the, for the universe in which it lived. And what Darwin showed is that at the time, he didn't know about DNA or the details of genetics, but he showed on the basis of observations that it was plausible and simple to understand how everything could come from a single organism. And, he, and, and that plausibility was worth celebrating. And in fact, it made predictions, which of course have been tested since then. Mm-hmm. We now know that that plausibility is now understandable in terms of the details of genetics. Now, we don't have a theory of the origin of life yet. We don't know exactly how biology came from chemistry, but it's certainly plausible on the basis of everything we know that that happened. And, and I think the fact that we can understand the natural world in terms of natural and amazing concepts without recourse to myth and fairy tale is something worth celebrating as humanity begins to grow up from, from, from childhood. Mm-hmm. I see. I don't quite know where to go right now, but I want to talk a little bit about what you say in the book about the universe itself before we return to this topic of plausibility. Um, at one point in the book, you say that the universe was kind of necessary if I remember correctly. and uh, Well, it's necessary. Well, it, it, uh, necessary. I, uh, yeah, that's a tricky one, too. Well, I mean, the point is that if you, it's quite plausible to say that, that a, a universe will be inevitable and, and that, that the laws of nature will mean that if you don't have a universe, eventually you wait long enough, the universes will come into existence. Mm-hmm. You want to call that necessary. I don't know whether I understand what the word necessary means. So, mm-hmm. so. No, I see, I see what you mean. Well, necessary would mean in the mechanical sense, but I don't suppose you say that. Um, and even that is tricky because it's really kind of probabilistic because it depends on lots of different things. Yes. So, uh, yeah, necessary is a, is a tricky one. Necessary is best left to logicians, I think, not scientists. Um, right. So then you talk a little bit about the future of our universe, and it's kind of depressing. <laughs> Yeah, the future is miserable. The two things I like to tell people is that you are far more insignificant than you ever thought, and the future is miserable. But you should be happy about both those things, um, uh, because the, it turns out if we because one of the most amazing things, which again motivated the the book, is that we've discovered that empty space actually has energy in it. That the dominant energy of the universe resides in empty space, where there's no matter, no radiation, and that, that energy in empty space is actually gravitationally repulsive, not attractive, which is even weirder, but what it means is the expansion of the universe 
is speeding up, not slowing down. And that is remarkable. And that discovery was made a little over a decade ago to about, well, to about 14 years ago. And people who made the discovery uh, won the Nobel Prize a few years ago for that remarkable discovery that the expansion of the universe is speeding up. Even though, of course, I predicted it three years earlier, but that's a different story. <laughs> uh, 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 but uh, the interesting thing is about that, it means that we're living at a very nice time because if the expansion of the universe is speeding up, then if we wait, the longer we wait, the less we will see because eventually all the galaxies we now see will be moving away from us faster than the speed of light and they will be invisible. In two trillion years, the rest of the universe will disappear and um, that's pretty miserable. It means we'll be alone in a vast, empty universe, the kind of universe we actually thought we lived in a hundred years ago mm -hmm. where there was one galaxy surrounded by an eternal empty void. Mm -hmm. And I'm, I'm sure that our listeners will uh, know that Einstein said that nothing can move faster than the speed of light. How, well, how is that going to happen? He didn't well, say that. Well, he didn't quite say that. We lie when we say that. Well, you know, I lie all the time. But uh, nothing, What Einstein said was nothing can move through space faster than the speed of light. Mm -hmm. But space itself can do whatever the heck it wants. I see. And in, in, with general relativity, you could be standing still and, and still be moving at the same time. Sure. You know, space can carry you away from me, but you can be standing still in space. And mm -hmm. so space can carry you away faster than light. Um, and that's, that's what's happening in our universe. Mm -hmm. I see what you mean. Well, uh, let's return to the, what I might call the polemical aspect of the book. I don't know if you object to that term, but uh, any book with Richard Dawkins uh, writing a, an afterword is um, going to draw a certain amount of attention how is the book received by people who are, I don't know how to put this, spiritual or religious or uh, have a deep abiding faith? Well, look, I mean, it depends on, 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 on what those people, um, what their predilections are. Um, there are people who have faith but they're wise enough to know that their faith can't get in, in the way of the evidence of reality. There's some people who think that unless the earth is 6,000 years old, God can't exist. And those people, well, it's hard to convince them of anything. Mm -hmm. um, but there are people who say, look, you know, uh, in fact, people from St. Augustine to Moses Maimonides, none of it, more or less that the Bible is a scientific document. So if the results of science conflict with your, your interpretation of scriptures, you better re-examine your interpretation of scriptures. Mm -hmm. So... There are, there are people of faith who say, look, this is fascinating. And I still believe somehow that there's purpose to the universe, even though that there's no evidence to that, of that. Other people, I hope, actually, that what this will happen, I, I hope. I don't know hope, whether hope is the word. I want people to be amazed by the universe. And if, they, and if some people find the real universe is so amazing that they don't need their God to, 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 to be spiritual, that's fine with me. In fact, I think it's a good thing. Uh, I think that 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 requiring uh, an intelligent purpose to the universe is I understand it's comforting, but it may not be there. And I think that one can be equally comforted by a universe with no purpose the, in which the, we make our own purpose by our existence and the acts that we do and the fact that we can think and we live at this remarkable time in the middle in this planet in the middle of nowhere, but we can we can use our brains to understand the universe from the beginning of time to almost the end. And mm -hmm. those things are worth celebrating. So it may cause some pe people to question their faith. If it does, that's fine, because I think questioning your faith is a good thing. 
for if for those people who 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 really who are somehow convinced by my arguments but really thought the universe was 6000 years old i don't imagine there are many of them um, if it's possible <laughs> them to accept the real universe for what it is that's wonderful and for those people who say look you know as i say i can't prove there's no purpose to the universe I, it, there's no evidence of purpose but that doesn't mean there isn't one and those people can say aha even though you don't you know even though i don't need god for any of the things i thought i need god for I still find my faith in God uh, comforting, but I accept the wonder of the universe. Well, then that's fine. Mm-hmm. Let me ask you, well, it will sound like a critical question, but really I think it's something serious to think about. Uh, I'm, I'm a historian by training, and the place that I studied is Russia and the Soviet Union. And one of the things you said got my attention, and that is that uh, one can live uh, an equally happy and productive life in a universe um, without any sort of spirituality, let's put it that way, just sort of neutrally, spirituality is one... I, by the way, let me point out this word spirituality is an interesting word because I don't know what the heck it means. Uh-huh. But I, I find science very spiritual, so... Mm-hmm. Okay, well, so I, uh, let, let's put it more I simply... Think, that, I, I mean, I, I want to really make that point. Science doesn't remove spirituality. Science makes the universe spiritually more interesting because it's actually real. Mm-hmm. I okay, see, okay. Anyway, well, then let's, let's put it more simply. Religion, religious people... Um, now, uh, again, uh, you know, as a scientist, a social scientist, and as somebody who's interested in things empirical and testable propositions and things like this, uh, we have experimented with uh, that proposition. Uh, the Soviet Union did it, and it turned out completely disastrously. What did they experiment with? Well, they, uh, they experimented with uh, a really hardcore atheism and a kind of materialism and a worship of science, and it turned out very badly. So just an empirical, it's just an empirical matter... I, just wait, this is an empirical matter, and I'm well, not, again, I'm just saying, this is just facts on the ground. It isn't facts on the ground. If they didn't worship science, I think your interpretation of history is wrong. They didn't believe in genetics because they, they didn't accept the results of genetics because somehow it got in the way of their ideology. They were ideologues. They weren't scientists, and, and to present the Soviet Union as a, as a scientific utopia is to totally, in my opinion, misunderstand both the history of so, the Soviet Union and the nature of science. Mm, mm. I, I, I mean, well, the Soviet Union was based on ideology, and ideo- anything that got in the way of that ideology was punished. Well, but part That's of that ideology was there was no God. What? Part of that ideology, there was no God. Well, for some people, part of the ideology was no God. Big deal. Well, as I say, I mean, it tur- I mean, I'm, what I'm saying is, is that, again, as, as an empirical fact... Based on the notion that, you know, of a God, and, 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 uh, and it didn't work out very well either. So I don't think... I, 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 I kind of find it... Um, disingenuous to argue that when people have many bad ideas, that one of their bad ideas, you know, that many, that the fact that they, they do bad things or have many bad ideas, it validates all of their ideas. It just, it's, it is true that the Soviet Union um, experimented with many things, including not allowing people to be free to think as they wanted to think. Mm -hmm. And that is a disaster. Mm -hmm. And it was through Nazi Germany, but for very different reasons. So I, I think, in fact, that science is incompatible with, in general with anything but a democracy because mm-hmm. science is based on free and open questioning. It's not based on being told what the answer is, whether that's religious or political. And so science doesn't flourish, in, in, and as, as it didn't in the Soviet Union, um, it doesn't flourish in regimes that stifle open questioning and, or in China when, it, was, when uh, it didn't flourish during that period. And, and in fact, I worry in our country 
when, when in fact, uh, uh, ideology trumps science in our, in our political domain, that we, we end up making bad decisions, and, and it's not good for science either. So I think the ultimate fact is that, 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 that atheism, if you want to call it that, and science, it, it, you can make the claim that there are atheist states that have done bad things. You can make the state claim that there are religious states that have done bad things. And usually the bad things have, not, uh, you know, have nothing to do with the atheism. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, I see. So let me put the question just slightly differently. Again, and I'm talking about studies that I've read. I, again, this is, I'm always very hesitant to do this because uh, who knows whether I'm making it up or not. I don't think I am. Uh, and that is that uh, people who uh, are religious um, are generally happier and less likely to do, uh, let's say, um, I don't really know how to put it, bad things, I'll put it generically, well, I, than I, people I, who are not. Well, no, I think you're wrong about one thing. I, there are some studies that show that people who are religious are happier. Um, I don't think there's any studies that show that they're less likely to do bad things. In fact, as my friend Steve Weinberg, a Nobel Prize winning physicist, has said, good people, there are good people and bad people. Good people do good things, bad people do bad things. Mm-hmm. When good people do bad things, it's religion. Mm-hmm. And I think that religion has caused seemingly good people to do many, many bad things. Mm-hmm. Now, religion, having a faith, may make you happier. And in fact, that it's, it, it's not surprising because you can feel taken care of, consoled, some community. There are things that religion provides that, are, that, that, are, um, that make people more comfortable and happy. So, but the key question is, to me, and I've been thinking about this a lot lately since my book, um, is that may be true, but do you need, is, does, is religion required to do that? Or could we find mm-hmm. something that wasn't based on, on, uh, on Iron Age myths that were invented before people knew that the Earth orbited the sun that does the same thing? And so religion provides certain things, but the question is, could you provide those same things without religion in a much healthier way and I suspect the answer is yes. Mm-hmm. Well, I, again, I would go, I know we differ here, but I would go back to uh, the Marxist tradition where they definitely tried to produce such a thing that would uh, make people live happy, productive lives. And at least that version of atheism uh, turned out dramatically, um, to be dramatically faulty. Well, that's because they got in the way of people wanting to, being able to ask questions and do what they mm-hmm. want. Yeah, no, I think that's it. I think, I think I could have, I think if you could encourage people to t- get spiritual joy in the mysteries of the universe, celebrate the common humanity of people without labeling themselves as Christians, Jews, or Muslims, mm-hmm. uh, um, to, to celebrate and, and, in fact, get consolation from the fact that we are lucky to be here at this moment and have stewardship of this planet in a way and need to take care of it, that no one else is taking care of us. Mm-hmm. Can get it's it's really the same as go, going from a child to an adult. A child mm-hmm. is happy because an adult is taking care of them. Mm-hmm. Ultimately, being an adult doesn't always mean you're unhappy. Mm-hmm. It means you you learn to to you you have you learn to take control of your life and try to make it as good as possible. And mm-hmm. it's true that that's that can be terrifying, but mm-hmm. it can also be ennobling in, in, in in, and 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 uplifting. And and so uh, you know it just depends. Mm-hmm. No, I, I see what you're saying, uh, and and I, I agree with a lot of it. And again, I I, I would say that again from my studies of history that the uh, I, I don't know of any such substitute for masses of people. Now that may just mean that 
humanity has to mature, as you say. Well, that, that's quite possible. Yeah, I don't think the fact I agree with you that religion has been been with us throughout human history. Uh, it's, on the other hand, it's also huh, waning in the first world. I mean, the number of people who classify themselves as a you know part of an organized religion has been going down in every major mm-hmm. Western country and continues to go down. And so. Uh, the future doesn't always have to be a repeat of the past. Mm-hmm. No, I don't think the future is almost ever a repeat of the past. <laughs> I can tell you that with great confidence. I don't think it is at all. I don't know where we're going with that. It's it's quite well, true. Well, I think not where we're going is what makes the universe uh, interesting too. I think I think that's what what's exciting is I don't know what we're going to discover next, and that if if we knew everything, it would be kind of boring. Mm-hmm. Well, let, let me let me ask this, and it, and it has to do with I think the touchiest and most misunderstood part of your book. And, and that is the turtles all the way down business. And do you think that people will ever be able to abandon the fascination they have with this problem of infinite regression or recursion of asking, well, what came before that? Look, no, I think we're kind of hard hardwired to wonder that, and and the, and it's and it's and it's frustrating to be told that some questions that we think are sensible questions are not good questions. And, you know, and when I say the question why isn't a good question, it's because it ultimately leads, as, I, as, I've, as I've said in recently I think on TV, that you know, anyone who's a parent knows the ultimate answer to the, the continuum of questions, why, why, why. Because <laughs> so, go to bed. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's true. And, I can tell you that from personal experience. Exactly. And, and, but I think the point is that the why presumes purpose. And what happened before presumes there was a before. But the universe may not work that way. Time may have begun, for example. And if when you ask why, you're presuming a purpose. But what if there isn't any purpose? Mm-hmm. Then the question isn't a good question. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, can you ask the question why without presuming a purpose? I don't see how. Mm-hmm. I think when we, when we do, we really mean how. Uh-huh. When we ask why, we, when I, and I ask why all the time, and in the subtitle of the book, ask why. But, we, but as I try and indicate, when we ask why, what we really mean, I think, is how. Mm-hmm. Unless we really believe in purpose, and then we're making a presumption, then we're presuming the answer before we ask the question, which is really what religion's all about, in my opinion, and that's what science isn't. Mm-hmm. I see, I see. So, uh, Lawrence Krauss, I've really enjoyed talking to you. I have to say this as well, you're a brave man. <laughs> you're a very brave man. I admire anybody that would write a book like this, I really do, and I'm sure that our listeners will... Um, will uh, be fascinated by reading it, and I encourage them to do so, even those who are spiritual or religious or have a deep abiding faith, that kind of thing. Um, it's, it's really a terrific read, and Lawrence is a, is a great writer, and as you can see, he's a pretty spicy interlocutor as well. Uh, and you speak a lot, so I bet people can go see you um, speak. So I think that would be a good thing. Anyway, uh, Lawrence Krauss, we've been talking about his book, A Universe from Nothing, Why There is Something Rather Than Nothing. Lawrence, thanks very much for being on the show. It's been a pleasure. All right. Take care. Bye-bye.